Well, good morning. And uh, yeah, a word of blessing to mothers. So thankful for my mother. Word of blessing to mother figures. To those who will be mothers and mother figures. As you care for people as a mother would, you reflect the image of God. Question today, what does it mean to be human? Good question for Mother's Day. The title of this message, it is arguably arguably the most pressing question of our day. The question is not only the most discussed in our society, it is also the realm where the biblical worldview is most contested in our time. Whether we're talking about new stem cell research or human cloning or sexual orientation and gender identity, we are compelled to examine and clarify what it actually means to be human. So how would you answer the question, what does it mean to be human? And all of the related questions, what does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? What about the gender spectrum? When is a life worth living? If it's possible to relate to God, how do we do that? How do we relate to one another? How do we relate to the environment? These are our worldview questions. They're not scientific questions. The dominant worldview of Canadian society, of course, is functional atheism. We just act as if God doesn't exist. And so when we address the question, what does it mean to be human, we usually don't even factor God into the equation. But our answers, they profoundly influence our understanding of human life, our identity, and our sense of purpose. So, identity... Am I just an illusion? Am I actually here in front of you? Maybe I'm not. Am I just an intelligent ape? And many of you would say, yes, that's all you are. (laughs) Am I a god? As some New Age thinkers would encourage me to think about myself. Or am I the creation of God? Am I here just by chance when we talk about purpose? Just by chance. Here I am, an accident between accidents, birth and death. And there actually is no ultimate meaning to my life. Or am I the creation of God with ultimate purpose? Emil Brunner wrote this. The most powerful of all spiritual forces is man's view of himself. The way in in which he understands his nature, his identity, and his destiny, his purpose. Indeed, it is the one force which determines all the others which influence human life. Now, many embrace, knowingly or unknowingly, Ernest Hemingway's assessment of life when he wrote, it was all a nothing and a man nothing too. It was all a nothing and a man was nothing too. He wrote that in his short fiction, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. His main character, the old man, would go to a clean, well-lit cafe to escape from the nothingness, from the monotony, the routine, the sleepless nights. And people without a grounded sense of identity and purpose continue to fill cafes and bars and casinos and nightclubs and chat rooms trying to fill the void. So this is a really important question, a a, a conversation which we should not shy away from. If we prayerfully engage in the conversation, there will be really good fruit. It's a conversation for mothers to have with their children, and fathers too. 
Mothers and fathers need to help their children understand what it means to be human. It's a conversation for spiritual mentors to have with their their mentees. What does the Bible say? What does it unveil for us? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, as Pastor Willie said last week, and the entire account in Genesis 1, from days 1 through 6, it's leading up to, it moves toward the apex of creation. On the sixth day of creation, God fills the earth with living creatures, with beasts and livestock and, and creeping things, and he looks at it and he sees that it's good. And then God does something remarkably different. Genesis chapter 1, first page of the Bible, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. God says, let us make man in our image. So he's created the whole cosmos with someone in mind. Other creatures are created according to their kinds, but human beings are created in the image of God. So humanity is presented as the crown jewel of God's creation in Genesis 1. Man is made, man and woman, made in the very image of God. So if we want to understand ourselves, we don't look to ourselves first. We don't look to the animal kingdom around us. We don't look to the cosmos to understand who we are. We look to God. We don't try to create our own identity through our work and our study and our self-promotion. We are actually born with an identity. We look to God to understand who we are. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? What does that mean? God here, he says, let us make man in our image. God's having a conversation with himself. This is the only moment in Genesis chapter 1 when God addresses himself. Human beings are simply breathed out of the love and harmony that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why doesn't he say, let me make man in my image? Because God exists as three in one. God is one in essence, but three persons in community. And we need to understand this about God to understand ourselves. Already in verse 2, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God participates in creation. And when we go to the New Testament in John chapter 1, we read about Jesus' participation. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. 
and without him was not anything made that was made. So the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they joined together to create the cosmos and every living thing. And in God's good will and purpose, God places us human beings close to himself. Because we're human beings made in God's image, we have the capacity to love God. We have the capacity to love one another. We have the capacity to care for creation. Because we're created in God's image, God can enter into relationship with us. He can speak to us, love us. The Bible is the only holy book that affirms that God is love. It's important to remember that. You see, because we're created in God's image, we can be self-giving. We can be merciful and faithful and loving. We're not created to be, as some say, curved in on ourselves, narcissistic, self-centered. We're created to look outward, to love God, and to see the other, to love other people. Hear the longing of Jesus' heart for us. We enter into the intimacy of Jesus' relationship with the Father in John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. And that we as human beings would be one with God. That's profound. You see, we yearn for relationship with God. We yearn for relationship with one another because we were created for loving relationship. That's the way we're wired. Verse 26, let us make man in our image. That word man in English, it's uh, the English translation for the Hebrew word Adam. And that Hebrew word Adam, it can be a generic term that refers to man and woman, to humanity. It can refer to man in distinction from woman. Or it can be the proper name Adam. Which is it here? Well, here in verse 26, man, it's the generic term for man and woman. It's important to note that. In verse 27, we encounter the first poem in the Bible. There's three phrases, and they highlight just the uniqueness of what God is creating. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so in stark contrast to the ancient worldview where women were so much less than men, at least in the understanding of human beings, God says, no, not only men are created in my image, but equally women in my image. God creates two sexes, male and female. And God says that these two sexes, male and female, are very good. Now, our conversation about these things in our society today is really sensitive. And so as I talk about this, it's probably almost impossible for me not to offend someone here. But I pray that we would listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to us. The language that's often used in our society today is sexual orientation and gender identity. 
Even that language, you see, language is powerful. That language already leads us in a direction. Facebook lists about 58 options for uh, gender identity. No matter how we think about this, no matter how we talk about this, I think that we need to recognize that in our society, many individuals suffer. Families suffer. The human family suffers. It's important to remember that each person is created in the image of God, that each person should be loved. We need the revelation of God to understand who we are. God created two biological sexes, male and female, and today in our world when we talk about gender, quite often we're talking about the expression of masculinity, the expression of femininity, and that often is conditioned by the environment, by culture. But no matter where we land, we must all look to God to understand who we are. And another thing that we need to remember is that we can think things, we can feel things that don't actually match reality. We can imagine ourselves to be almost anything. We have that capacity. And we can be very wrong about our identity. What do I mean by that? In the ancient world, the people that this text was written to, they understood that they were an afterthought. They actually thought that they were on earth to provide food for the gods. That was their purpose. So they made sacrifices. They made temples for gods to live in. And their purpose was to provide food for the gods. A very wrong understanding of identity and purpose, but that was the understanding. That's why God revealed himself to them. So we need to remember that first and foremost, if we want to understand ourselves, we need to look to God before we look inward or we look around ourselves. If we're in relationship with the person that in their experience of gender, their experience of gender doesn't align with their biological sex, how do we respond? Well, we remember that every person is created in the image of God and we're created for loving relationship. And so no matter who the person is, no matter how they understand themselves, we respond in love and we do what we would do with any person. We point ourselves and the people around us to Jesus. We'll talk about that a little more in a minute. God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image. In our image, in, after our likeness. That, that phrase, after our likeness, it's, it's important because it nuances the meaning of image. We are not God. We are like him. So in summary, men and women are equally, equally created in God's likeness. When thinking about the image of God, traditionally, um, theologians uh, readers of the scripture have thought about the God-given capacities that men and women carry, unusual God-given capacities. For, for example, we're incurably spiritual. We're, we're conscious of ourselves. We think about the meaning of this life. We think about death. We think about life after death. We think about how we might relate to the spiritual realm. 
We have a spiritual longing. And in North American society, here in Canada, even though we may be denying the existence of God as revealed in the scriptures, we are still incurably spiritual. You see it in the movies, in the TV shows, the video games. Often the language and the imagery being used is from the paranormal, from the occult, and people now read horoscopes and read tarot cards and go to fortune tellers, but it just manifests what is true about us. We are incurably spiritual. We also have an unusual capacity to reason. We want to solve problems. We want to discover truth. We can think abstractly. We have an unusual capacity to choose. We have an innate awareness of right and wrong. And so even people that deny the existence of God completely will talk about justice. They will talk about what is right and wrong. We have an unusual capacity to communicate through language, through complex Symbol recognition. We have an unusual capacity to be creative. You see it in the arts and the sciences. If you like um, nature the way I do, then you know that animal species use tools. You know that they form communities. You know that they even divide roles and responsibilities. But the community life developed by human beings, it represents an unusual level of capacity, of diversity, of complexity, of growth. If you're like me, then when you observe humpback whales going up the Pacific coast and they message one another and they work together to feed off the coast of Alaska, you are awed by that. Or uh, bottlenose dolphins. Bottlenose dolphins. That's what I'm trying to say. Bottlenose dolphins. They, they'll, they'll pick up a, a marine sponge with their beak. And, uh, and then, you know, scour the ocean floor and uncover prey. Unbelievable. I guess believable because it happens. Or uh, a chimpanzee that takes a stone and cracks open a nut. We think, wow, that's cool. But that is so far from making automobiles with robots. <laughs> Isn't it? Someone agrees. Thanks, Ted. <laughs> Needed that affirmation. But the existence of humanity, seriously, with its spiritual dimension and unusual capacities, it demands supernatural intervention. There is no natural explanation for human attributes. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. This verse, it links the image of God to the dominion that we've been given over every living thing, the seas, the, he in the he seas, the heavens and the, on the earth. Uh, this is our assigned purpose. But to understand what it means, again, we need to look at the context. You see, in the ancient Near East, the only one that was a representative of God on earth was the king. The king ruled on behalf of the God. The whole political apparatus, all of the mythology supported the king as the image of God on earth, the one to be worshipped. Now, when you go to the scriptures, something changes radically. Only God is the king of the cosmos, the ruler over all things. And who rules as representatives of God? All people, men and women, not just the king. And in their ruling over creation, they are to image God's way of being. 
So we men and women are created to represent God on earth. This view of humanity was completely unique in the ancient Near East, and it is unique in the 21st century as well. At creation, we're set apart from all other creatures and crowned with glory and honor as rulers of the earth, mirroring and God and, and breathing his life. We live in relationship. We love one another. We exercise authority. We reflect his glory. Why? Because we are created in God's image. And because we're created in God's image, every life is sacred. Every life. Every assault on human beings is an affront to our creator. We have inherent value. All men and women, every living human being, deserves to be treated with the dignity that that image affords. The sick, the poor, the elderly, the unborn child, the infant, the teenager, the disabled, all. This past week, Jean Vanier, uh, he passed away at 90 years of age. Maybe you're familiar with his life. He was born into privilege, born into the family of uh, Canada's 19th governor general, and he had every reason just to rest in that privilege. He earned his PhD at a very young age. He became professor at the University of Toronto, but Jean chose to live differently. He decided to befriend the intellectually disabled. The Globe and Mail refers to his life as the global, the global miracle. Now, at the end of his life, 152 communities for the intellectually disabled in Canada, France, Kenya, India, around the world. His passion was to establish the unique value of the intellectually disabled life. And of course, we would ask, why? Why that passion? And John very simply said, Jesus asked it of me. The Bible inspired him. That's what he said. He lived among the intellectually disabled. He loved them. He was loved by them. He recalls this. I quote him. Essentially, they, the intellectually disabled, were not very interested in my knowledge or my ability to do things, but rather they needed my heart and my being. He discovered in his relationship with the intellectually disabled that each person is a gift. You see, our Canadian society, we talk so much about human rights. We fight for human rights, but we desperately need heart and being. We do not have value because we have rights. We don't have value because of our salary, because of our vacation time, because of our work benefits. We have value because God created us so in his image. The protection of human rights is inevitable if we preserve human dignity. But the protection of human rights does not guarantee human dignity. And so we must never acquiesce and assimilate to the dominant worldview in Canada because we really don't want to be the random product of a natural selection process and a few uh, genetic mutations. Because if we do that, if we assimilate, we will become much less than we are. 
and the genocide of the unborn and the elderly and the poor and ethnic minorities and on and on. It's just a question of time and circumstance if we adopt the dominant worldview in Canada today. So to understand who we are, may we look to God. God graces us with sacred identity and purpose. May we not shrink back from this conversation. May we enter it with humility, yes, because we don't understand all things, but the understanding given of who we are by God is really, really precious. And the implications are massive. So we look to God to understand our purpose. And our purpose is rooted in God's blessing. We read in verse 28, and God blessed them, meaning God favored them. God's blessing empowers us to act. What does God favor us to do? He says, be fruitful and multiply. This is a gift to humanity. It's a privilege. It's not a cold command for couples to have children. In Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, Adam, he, he fathers a son, and that son, Seth, is in his image and likeness. And so when men and women have children, they are birthing or giving life to children in their image, and they are in the image of God. So it's a, set, a special privilege for mothers. And let's remember this on Mother's Day. It's a special privilege for mothers to pass on the image of God. So different from the ancient world because in the ancient fertility cults, what would happen is, you know, people would recite incantations and they would make sacrifices and they'd engage in illicit sexual activity, all with the desire, with the hope that somehow they would secure fertility on earth. And into that world, which was so dark, God says, that's obsolete. <laughs> I've actually favored you, blessed you to have children. We're favored by God to procreate and multiply. At one level, we've really fulfilled this privilege, right? The earth is quite full. In the 17th century, there were about 500 million people on earth. Um, by the year 1950, about 2.5 billion on earth. After World War II, the global population skyrocketed. And so now in 2019, there's about 7.6 billion on earth. And some would say that the earth can only sustain 10 billion. And so people start to talk about controlling population growth, right? It's a conversation that's very alive. Population growth, it never justifies the genocide of the unborn. It never ju justifies the genocide of the elderly, of the sick, of the disabled, those from other ethnicities. Those acts always dem uh, represent a denial of the image of God in human life and they're a sign of unbelief in God, our creator, our provider. And one other thing to remember when we talk about being fruitful and multiply, Dr. Christopher Ewan reminded us a number of months ago that as you read through the scriptures, the emphasis shifts from biological children to spiritual children. And so what that means is that all of us, men and women, married, single, we all have the privilege of living under this blessing. 
As we make disciples that make disciples, as the spiritual family grows, as people become sons and daughters, we live out this privilege to be fruitful and multiply. It's for all of us. And then God favors humanity with one more privilege. Verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Subdue it and have dominion. If there ever was a phrase that's been grossly misinterpreted throughout human history. Some believe that the natural world, it's just sitting there waiting for us to use it and abuse it for our own purposes. At least for me, right? Others believe that the end of the world is imminent, so no need to even think about the long-term care of the environment. Subdue it and have dominion does not mean ruin it and destroy it. That's not what it means. The exploitative use of the earth and its living creatures to satisfy our greed, it's a consequence not of our being created in God's image, but the fall of humanity. So when we think about these things, we don't take that what some call the anthropocentric view, putting human beings at the center of all things. It's all about us. We also don't take the, what they call the biocentric view, placing plants and human beings and animals all in the same plane, and what it means to be human is to just worship the environment and become one with it. We take the theocentric view. God is at the center Creation exists for his glory, not ours. God owns creation. We don't. We are here to steward what God has placed in our hands for his glory. We do this for God, the creator and possessor of all the earth. So we're favored by God to rule over and care for his his creation. His expectation is that we'll govern the earth the way that he governs, that we'll govern with his wisdom with his care, with his love, with his sense of responsibility. You know, I believe that as Christians, we should be the best environmentalists ever. Not because we worship Cascadia. Not because we worship British Columbia, even though it is very, very beautiful. Not because we believe that creation around us is infused with the divine. But we see God's creative hand all around us. It's all a testimony to God's divine nature, to his eternal glory. We have every motivation to care for the earth as God would. And quite frankly, we are the only living creatures that can do it. The orcas can't do it. Polar bears can't do it. The salmon can't do it. We were created to do it. In Genesis 1... As God brings order to the chaos, as he fills the emptiness, he looks at what he has created and he says over and over again, it's good, it's good. After the creation of the man and the woman, as he contemplates the harmony and the order, the perfection and the beauty of his completed handiwork, he exclaims, it is very good. Not as Pastor Willie would say, "Eh, it's good. He said, it's very good, very good. To understand what I said, you would have to have been here last week. But very good. 
expresses it with enthusiasm. And the phrase is only said very good after the image of God is present on the earth. God creates us in his image. He blesses us. He loves us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to love one another. He wants us to rule as he rules, to (laughs) just live out this being made in his image. And our response should be, this is awesome. We're actually made in the image of God. Hallelujah. Now, I think it's fair to say that throughout human history, we haven't listened to God very well. We have lived far below what God has created us to be. And so we're broken. All of creation groans, as Paul writes. We see evidence of it all around us, in creation, in society. And so the question is, is there any hope for us? Where would we even look if we wanted to see the exact image of God? Where would we look today? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint, some translations, the exact image of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So looking at Jesus, we see the truth about God. Looking at Jesus, we see the truth about ourselves. He always was, is, always will be the exact image of God. Jesus defines what it means to be human. Jesus defines what it means to be human. He possessed a perfect understanding of his identity in the Father. He possessed a perfect understanding of his meaning, his purpose in life. He loved his Father. He loved people. He ruled as the Father would rule. He reflected the Father's glory perfectly. So if we want to truly be human, we need to know Jesus, study his life, and follow him because it is only in Jesus that we can become who we were created to be. Only in Jesus. Sometimes it's so hard to see that, right? So hard to understand that. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when we turn to Jesus, turn to Jesus as being, yes, the revelation of God, the one who came because the Father loved us and really wanted, desired to reveal himself to us so that we would know him, so that we could be in relationship with him. When Jesus died for us and revealed to us the Father's heart, his love for us, and took our sin upon himself, When we come to an understanding of all that that means and we yield our lives to him, we say, yes, Lord, we need forgiveness. We do live far beyond, below what you, you created us to be. Have mercy on us. And we turn to Jesus and receive Jesus as our Savior, the one who can restore us, our Redeemer, our Lord. 
Jesus and the Father, they send the Holy Spirit to abide in us, and we are made new. We are alive. We're recreated. We're restored. And the Holy Spirit begins that work of transformation in us from one glory to another glory, being transformed into the image of God. And the wonderful promise is that the day is coming when Jesus will present us to the Father in glory, in splendor, blameless. And Jesus has promised to complete that work in us. So we live with hope. And we have a tremendous message to share with all those who live around us. Share it with, not with arrogance, but with joy in your heart. We were created in the image of of God and to be human, to be who we were created to be, we need to know Jesus and follow him. May we do that. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we, we just worship you and praise you and thank you that we weren't an afterthought. <laughs> an accident, but you created us with purpose. You created us in your very image, and you created us to know you, to love you, to be known by you. You know us by name, and so we thank you for your goodness, for your love, even when we don't deserve it, because Jesus, you came while we were yet sinners, when we didn't even have a thought about you, and so we are so thankful that you've drawn us to yourself by your Spirit. And I pray for those here as well who may have all kinds of questions about who you are, God, and what it means to be human today. Thank you that you're not afraid of our questions, Lord, that you invite us to ask. And so, Lord, may you reveal yourself to each one of us. We're all on a journey. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to abide in us, to teach us. You said, Jesus, that you would send your Spirit to guide us into all truth. And so, Lord, may you do that. We need your help to understand. And we thank you this morning that you will complete your work in us. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Mother's Day.